1: Hey, thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. Our podcast is sponsored by Alliance Defending Freedom. ADF provides help at no cost to those whose liberty is being violated, but they can't do it without your help. Call 800-691-8969. That's 800-691-8969. Or visit townhallreview.com. We have a new video up at You this week, as we do every week. Contrary to what the people depict Prager U as, we truly do try to teach everything. Some of it is has political ramifications, some of it has none. Some of it has religious ramifications, moral ramifications, some is pure history. In the latter category, though it has ramifications, is the latest video. Do you Do you folks know what happened after slavery was abolished? We had something called Reconstruction. Had it worked, America would be a, a, would have been a better place. It didn't. Why it didn't is the subject. The man who gives this course is Alan Guelzo, is a professor of American history, director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton. When did you move over to Princeton?
2: Just on the first of September, so I am a newly minted tiger.
1: Newly minted tiger, yes, NMT exactly, as it were. Uh, So you left Gettysburg, yes. How long? How how many years? Fifteen years. Was that difficult?
2: Oh, it was. Yes, it was pulling away, and there were there were moments of. There were moments of deep, dis- deep distress. I mean, how could their help but be? Because if you spend fifteen years in a place for one thing, that, that you, you form these bonds and these attachments, and what's more, you're spending it at a place which is so clearly connected to your own scholarly interests—Lincoln, the Civil War—that uh, that that's always that's always going to be something to cope with.
1: I hope to to interview you in fifteen years and ask you which 15 years gave you more joy Gettysburg or Princeton and I I make no prediction but it would be fascinating because obviously one is more prestigious but I don't know if it it will be more joyful
2: well let me put it this way I've known Princeton for many many years back Oh, long ago when I was writing my doctoral dissertation, I actually did most of the research at Princeton, even though I was a graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania. So I got to know Princeton very well. I have been a visiting professor twice at Princeton in the Department of Politics. I was a Madison fellow on top of that. So I've gotten to know Princeton very well, and it's it's almost like uh, second turf, so to speak. Uh, I know where things are. I even know where the first five presidents of Princeton are buried all in a row in the Princeton Town Cemetery, and it's a very familiar place. It's like putting one's hands into some very familiar gloves again.
1: Oh, well, I'm happy for you, and congratulations. Well, thank you. All right. So, sadly, Americans know very little of their history, so and I've always had an attitude in my 30 plus years of broadcasting never underestimate the intelligence of your audience but never overestimate the knowledge of your audience and it has been my guideline my whole life a lot of bright people but they haven't been taught much especially in history unfortunately so tell us in a nutshell what what reconstruction means
2: reconstructions is supposed to mean re-knitting and reunifying the divided Union at the end of the Civil War. We fought a a war, a civil war, for four years between the United States, the authority of the United States and the breakaway Southern Confederacy. Reconstruction was supposed to put the pieces of the nation back together again. Now that's putting it in the nutshell. There are so many working parts within that nutshell though because complicating simply the act of reunifying the country, you also have to deal with the fact that the Civil War ended up abolishing slavery. What then do you do with the newly freed slaves, and how are they going to be integrated into this Reconstructed Union? So there are a lot of complications that enter into reconstructing the union and it's not something that is easy to do because there's no real easy template there's no reconstruction for dummies that you can go out and buy in 1865 at the end of the civil war and easily work up a template for doing it a lot of it was improvisation a lot of mistakes were made and truth be told we are living with the
1: that's economy. right that's exactly why this video is so important folks it is illuminating it's up at prager You professor guelzo Professor of American History at princeton reconstruction a concise history i here's a question for you I, I i I always think in terms of the big picture, which is not good or bad it just is what would have happened if if Abraham Lincoln had not been assassinated
2: Dennis I'm asked that question probably more than any other question and one of the basic answers I have to give is, we don't know. And the reason we don't know is because Lincoln was a man who played his political cards very, very close to his chest. People said about Lincoln that he was the most shut-mouthed, reticent man they had ever met. Hmm. And he did not take people into his confidence, and he did not put his policies out there for people to take shots at. On the other hand, Lincoln also was a man of great political flexibility. He would attempt a particular initiative. If it didn't work, he would bounce off that. He would try to move around it and go in another direction. If Lincoln had lived, certainly one thing he would have saw that would have been non-negotiable would have been the full participation of the freed slaves in the political life of a reunited nation, which would have made all the difference in the world. That would have been a priority for him, and in his very last speech, that was one of the things that he was calling for now if that had happened if real political integration had happened then we would have had a very different end to reconstruction likewise if we'd also had along with that more economic integration so that the freed slaves suddenly find themselves at the end of the civil war not only free but able to become productive and move into the mainstream of the american economy The change in American racial relations would have been so dramatic that we would not recognize all that has happened in the last 80, 90, 100 years. It would have made that much difference. But we didn't have Lincoln. Instead, what we had was probably the worst possible kind of leadership from his vice president, Andrew Johnson. And... As a result, Reconstruction, at the end of the day, is overthrown. I mean, people talk sometimes about Reconstruction failing. Actually, I think that's almost too gentle. Reconstruction is overthrown. And it's overthrown because at the end of the Civil War, Northerners who had always convinced themselves while the war was on that the Confederacy was simply a coup pulled off by the slave-holding oligarchs, that all they had to do... Was make an overture to ordinary white people and newly freed slaves, and what would happen would be that the South would convert itself into an image of New England. It would be free labor, it would be capitalist development. Well, that didn't happen. And in large measure, it was because it was fought, first of all, by people in the South who turned out not to be interested in those things, mostly white people, and also. It was fought by Northern Democrats who had no desire to see a free market economy take hold in the South. And between the opposition that is generated by Northern Democrats and the opposition that is generated by what you can only really call terrorist resistance, by, you might, if, if I can translate it into a modern idiom, by uh, Southern militias of various sorts, insurgent militias, uh, put those two together, and what you get by 1877 is an overthrow of what were otherwise regimes of hope in the southern states. And that not only sends us in the direction of Jim Crow and segregation and white supremacy, It also sends the South into 80 years of economic stagnation in which the South really doesn't participate in a meaningful way in the ongoing industrial and commercial development of the rest of the country. It's a tragedy.
1: God, I'm sitting here and I'm sort of internally weeping.
2: Well, we should, because we, we should weep, first of all, for the people whose hopes were so cruelly disappointed by this. We should weep for the idea of democracy. That it sustained such a rebuke after four years of the most violent bloodletting in American history in our Civil War, that we have a war in which the country wins the war, but the resistance—if I can use that term—the resistance wins the peace. What
1: animated that, that should make us weep? Yes. What animated the Northern Democrats? Was it was its equivalent uh, racist views? Uh, oh, the, white supremacy ruled the day right. for them. Right, because so you mentioned the opposition. Southern Democratic colleagues. Right. So you mentioned, however, you, you didn't mention that. You mentioned their opposition to the free market in the South. That's that's why I'm asking the question.
2: Well, it's because the Democratic Party before the Civil War had always been the party of resistance to the market revolution, to free labor and the wonders of free labor this is why you had so many Southern Democrats try to say that free labor was really only wage slavery, and the kind of slavery they were practicing in the South was actually superior as a a labor system. Northern Democrats and Southern Democrats found tremendous areas of overlap and alliance in white supremacy, in suspicion of the markets, and they had been a solid bulwark right up until the beginning of the Civil War. When the southern states secede, that puts northern Democrats in a very embarrassing position. Now suddenly they're rendered an Mm -hmm. isolated minority in the north. Mm -hmm. But once the war is over, northern Democrats, southern Democrats once again find each other's arms and they're able to rebuild an opposition.
1: How many people know this, my friends, about the Democratic Party's history? As tragic as the Civil War was, the failure of Reconstruction or I think the word, what is the word you use? The, the destruction? The overthrow. the overthrow, yes. The overthrow of Reconstruction following the assassination. And how how much after the Civil War is the assassination?
2: Well, Lincoln is shot on April 14th, 1865, just one week after the surrender of Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia uh-huh. at Appomattox Court, okay. so there's some other partial confederate surrenders which will occur after that right so essentially
1: he didn't didn't live after the civil war i mean it's just not now so back to andrew johnson who succeeded him this very often happens that people run and they they appoint or nominate for their as their vice presidential running mate someone with whom they share very few values but will get more votes is that the case here
2: Absolutely. The 1864 presidential election was one in which Lincoln knew he was going to be facing an electorate that was getting weary and impatient about the war. He wanted to be able to go before the voters saying, well, look, I have a Tennessee Democrat, a loyal Tennessee Tennessee Democrat, stayed loyal to the union despite the fact that his state seceded. And I'm going to add him to the ticket, see what a wonderful coalition, what a wonderful, balanced, bipartisan ticket we have. Myself, Abraham Lincoln, and Andrew Johnson of Tennessee. Well, that was great in terms of the politics. Nobody was thinking, oh my goodness, what would, this, what would happen if Abraham Lincoln was suddenly taken off the scene? Because no one ever thinks in those terms. Right. And unfortunately, that is exactly what happened. Andrew Johnson becomes president, and it's safe to say that hardly anybody in American history has been less well-prepared, less fit, less (laughs) equal to the task of being a president than Andrew
1: Johnson. And when it was most needed, one might add. And when it was most needed. Well, you are really our go-to historian on on these matters, and uh, his video is magnificent. It's up at PragerU on Reconstruction, and his book as well. Reconstruction of concise history. Professor, good luck at Princeton, and I look forward to uh, more endeavors with you.
2: Dennis, it's always fun and probably more fun than is
1: legal. (laughs) You're a good man. Hey, thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. Our podcast is sponsored by Alliance Defending Freedom. ADF provides help at no cost to those whose liberty is being violated, but they can't do it without your help. Call 800 691 8969. That's 800 691 8969. Or visit TownhallReview.com.
0: This is Lon Hee Chen of the Hoover Institution for Townhall.com. President Trump has picked Robert O'Brien to serve as his national security advisor, and he couldn't have made a better choice for such an important job. I have known and worked with Robert for years. He's a man of high integrity who has a deep understanding of the national security challenges facing our country. O'Brien is cool under pressure and highly capable of dealing with the thorniest global issues. He's committed to keeping Americans safe, rebuilding our military, and working to promote President Trump's America First foreign policy at a critical time. Robert takes the job at a time when there are significant national security challenges around the world. But Americans should take comfort in knowing that Robert O'Brien will be counseling President Trump on the best way to address these challenges. I'm Lon He Chen. The Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy, America's unique graduate leadership degree, offered on its most beautiful campus. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu